This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. There's something inherently satisfying about a full circle, a completion, a beginning brought to its fullness and coming to its natural end, which leads right into the next beginning. This full circle satisfaction is true for cycles of the moon, cycles of the season, and the garden. For me, this is especially apparent at the winter solstice and, of course, the full circle of a calendar year. It's long been customary to celebrate the year's end by toasting to the old and welcoming the new with a glass of something bubbly. And I decided cultivating place should, too. But not just any bubbly. Rather, one that is deeply grounded in this cultivation of place and all its systems and intricacies we find so vital and fascinating. A glass of bubbly that embodies and is as interdependent with the soil, water, wildlife, and plant life of place as we are. So what better bubbly than the most ancient of fermented spirits, nectar of the gods, honey-based mead? To that end, and to new beginnings, today I'm joined by Gordon Hull, mead maker and owner of Hydron Meadery, makers of dry, sparkling mead based in Point Reyes, California. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Tell us a little bit about the early influences in your life that led to your interest in the natural world and to these kinds of processes such as geology, brewing, mead making, and currently habitat building in support of your mead making. I was born in Chicago and lived in Chicago till I was about seven years old, but it was my good fortune that my parents decided that I and my older brothers needed some pioneering influence and moved us from Chicago to Seattle when I was seven. Uh, Living in Seattle, I had the opportunity to grow up in the natural environment and it really formed uh, my way of looking at the world, um, the areas outside of Seattle, of course, between the Puget Sound and the San Juan Islands and the Cascade Mountains really were the, the playground for my childhood. And I always found that I've found the best answers to life's questions through the natural world. So I think that was very formative to me and helped me to decide to go into a profession, particularly geology, which was my first career, in order to learn more about the natural world and and to um, to understand it more. And I have heard you say in other interviews that any geologist worth his salt also loves beer. And it was your interest in home brewing and ultimately becoming sort of a brew master that led you to mead. Describe mead for listeners and a little bit about its history and what exactly it is. Certainly. Uh, the mead is a wine made from honey rather than grapes. And it's a very old beverage. It predates grape wine and um, beer by uh, thousands of years, most likely. Um, and there are many different forms of mead. We usually think of the types of mead that are uh, mentioned in Shakespeare and, and in Chaucer. And when we think of those types of mead, we think of a, a beverage that is heavy and thick and maybe cloying, something that's drunk from a stein in a pub in England in the medieval ages. Uh, but really, 
at its core, mead is a wine made from honey, and, and it can be made in, in many different styles. We happen to make ours in a very unorthodox style in that it's sparkling and it is non-sweet. It's dry, and we make it sparkling using the traditional French method champenois, and we do that in order to um, create a mead that is um, reflective of the types of flowers that the bees are collecting nectar from in order to produce honey. So I want to start with the farm before we get to your exact varietals. Certainly. Describe Hydrin Farm as it is now and how you came to it as a mead maker because you didn't start there. That's right. I started Hydrin Meadery back in 1997 up in Humboldt County, which is just a little south of the Oregon border and on the uh, California coast in a town called Arcata. And uh, I started the meadery there in a, in a small warehouse space as a, as a one-man operation, and I would produce mead there and then box it up and, and put it in the back of my delivery van and drive down to the Bay Area to uh, sell it to restaurants and retailers in the Bay Area. Early on in the process of producing mead up in Humboldt County, I realized that it would be interesting to get involved in beekeeping and to explore that world a little bit, uh, a little bit more nature to get involved in. And um, for practical reasons, uh, I began looking for a farm where I could both keep bees and grow um, uh, bee forage plants uh, and produce mead at one location and preferably someplace closer to the Bay Area where my primary market is. By good fortune, after a long search, uh, I found a place in Point Reyes Station, which is uh, in Marin County, just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. It, it was an old dairy farm that was attractive to us because it could be converted into a, a meadery and these other elements that I wanted to get involved in. It is 16 acres and... You have m multiple sort of layers of potential bee forage happening on the farm. I, I want to sort of emphasize from what you just said, the kind of beauty of having this drink. And goodness knows I love champagne and I love wine and I love the fact that they are cultivated from plants. But mead is something special in that it involves pollination and habitat and healthy pollinators and this beautiful kind of legacy of the importance of the honeybee symbolically and practically in our gardens, in our agriculture, in our wildlands. And to have that be a whole process that you are encompassing at your farm is just really remarkable to me. Right. Well, that really, uh, you're speaking about the ecology of the honeybee, and that really is what attracted me after initially working exclusively as a mead maker to get involved in that entire cycle to work with the flowers that are providing sustenance to the bees that they can then use to make honey that we can then borrow from them to make a wine that people can appreciate was really part of the whole that whole ecology and representing that in one location at our farm provided an opportunity for us to educate the public about that ecology you know there's um, 
so much going on with the health of the honeybee these days uh, around the world and, and declines in, in the numbers of, of bee colonies and pollinators in general that educating the public is a, a really important part of uh, ensuring that we have these pollinators around. And, of course, those are necessary for the health of any garden, and they're necessary for the production of all of our food crops and or most of the food crops that we have in the United States. So there is a, a heavy component of education in what we try to do at the meadery, and our vis- visitors are able to... Um, to have the hands-on experience with both beekeeping and with the bee forage horticulture that we're working on there. So visually describe this 16-acre farm for us. Well, this is an old dairy farm, and it's composed of a uh, fairly, uh, about, about 10 acres of fairly flat arable land, and then a few steep slopes leading down to a riparian corridor, uh, Tomasini Canyon Creek. Uh, as a dairy farm, um, the pastures have been seeded long ago with uh, European grasses that were um, planted as forage for the dairy cows that were on the property. There is an old hay barn on the structure. It was a feed barn for the cattle, as well as a loafing room and a milking barn and then a farmhouse, which is where I and my family live. The old hay barn... Uh, it was suitable for mead production, and so we've moved our production facility into that building. The The loafing room, which is really open air, has been turned into a greenhouse, and uh, we keep our nursery there. We, we grow plants for sale, uh, bee forage plants. Uh, and we also have our, our tasting bar there, so people can actually come into a nursery and drink bubbly while they're looking at bee forage plants. And then the milking barn has become our honey production facility. It's where we extract honey from our hives into barrels that we can then use to make mead. So uh, we've been able to repurpose this farm as as a meadery. And instead of having dairy cows as our livestock, honeybees are our livestock. You started out as a one-man operation, and now you have um, a little bit more of a diversified staff. You have a a head beekeeper. That's exactly right. We actually have two beekeepers now. Bonnie and Gary Morse are my beekeepers, and they're in charge of managing the the hives that we have both on the property and at seven other apiaries that we manage in the vicinity of, of the metery, in about a 30-mile radius of the metery, I would say. The purpose of those different apiaries is for us to uh, experiment with uh, what I call micro terroir, which is experimenting with the different flavors of honey that we can get from geographic locations that are fairly proximal to where we are, and just uh, with differences based on uh, variations in the flora that are growing in those areas that are close to us. And terroir, of course, is a, a very traditional word used in winemaking, maybe in beer make, brewing as well. But the different tastes that you can get from different areas based on soil and hydrology and then the plants that thrive in those areas all resulting in a, a signature flavor. That's exactly right. So the, we're in our third year of producing a mead varietal from 
uh, bees that we keep on our own on the farm at, at Hydrant Meadery. And that's our point raise wildflower varietal. And it's it's beautiful uh, varietal, very champagne-like, but very uh, wine-like, in fact. And then we also produce a, a varietal from the bees that we keep in Bellinas, which is a small town about 15 miles south of us on the coast. It's very influenced by some other plants, particularly um, eucalyptus trees, which are, which are not native to the area but are abundant in that area. And we find that we get a different flavor of, of mead from, from that location than we do from Point Reyes. So we're exploring this um, idea to see what is the terroir, what, is the, what are the flavors of an area. One of the wonderful things about honey is that it, it never spoils. You can keep honey for years and years, and, and it, it doesn't get any worse in its flavor. So we, uh, honey is, generally speaking, honey is, um, is harvested in the spring, uh, through the summer, and into the, into the autumn, and into the late autumn. Once it's been harvested and extracted from the hive then and stored properly, then it keeps for, for as long as you like. So unlike uh, grape wineries, we can produce mead year-round. In fact, we produce a batch of mead about once a week, uh, much like a brewery would produce. So it really our production facility is sort of a hybrid between uh, a brewery and a winery. We use, we use many of the same techniques that wineries use in production, but we're producing a batch every week, much like a brewery would do. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're speaking with Gordon Hull, mead maker and owner of Hydrin Meadery, creators of dry, sparkling meads, which, being honey-based, embody the essence of watershed, soil, plant, and floral diversity. Seems like just the right libation and cultivation story with which to ring in the new year. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. This week, Gordon Hull, owner and mead maker of Hydrin Meadery, is with us to talk about the many factors of water, soil, sun, and pollinator-friendly habitat that go into making any good mead, especially his dry, sparkling mead. Welcome back. Besides the beekeepers, you also have a head horticulturalist, Jordan, and she is the person who first introduced me to 
the existence of hydrant metery. Talk a little bit uh, to us about what she is doing with the garden and the greenhouse and the different bee forage plants that you're working with there. Right. Well, moving from Humboldt down to uh, Point Reyes uh, was also a little bit of a, a change in the in the business model in that instead of just having one business, uh, we really had three. Uh, instead of just making mead, we were also beekeeping. And then once the beekeeping had begun, it became apparent that we really needed to be growing bee forage too for the health of our bees. And that's when we brought on Jordan. Jordan is a trained horticulturist from UC Davis. Um, and she was brought on in order to help us really transform the floral ecology of this old dairy farm from what it traditionally was with all of its European forage grasses for, for dairy cows and grow as much bee forage as we possibly can in order to provide supplemental nutrition at the very least to our beehives. She's involved in, in working on a number of different ecologies in order to do that. We have the pasture lands, of course, and on those pasture lands, we're trying to outpopulate the the European grasses with wildflowers. So we're planting California poppies and clarkias and five spot, uh, lacy leaf facelia, those kinds of uh, plants that are uh, native and attractive to honeybees. We're also developing some hedgerows. Hedgerows are a great way to create bee forage and bring uh, the, fur, the forage up vertically with uh, larger hedges and shrubs. And so our hedges are composed of California wax myrtle and toyon and ceanothus, those sort of uh, coastal chaparral plants, uh, coyote bush that, that are prevalent around here and that provide a source of food at, at various times of year depending upon when they're blooming. Coyote bush is a good example. It, it blooms in very late autumn. In fact, it's just come off its bloom recently, but it provides a very, very late autumn floral nectar source for the, for the bees. It's very healthy. I, I mentioned eucalyptus previously, a, a non-native, of course, and we have some of the eucalyptus here. We just realized, my beekeepers and I, this morning that the eucalyptus is just starting to bloom now, and here we are at the the winter solstice. So we're, we're looking for different ways to provide nectar sources for the bees throughout the year, whether it's native plants like the, the wildflowers that we're planting in the pasture or non-natives that happen to be part of our uh, human-influenced ecology here. We make the best of the what's on our plate in a way. And I understand that Jordan has worked with um, both UC Davis and her experience there, but also with the Urban Bee Lab at UC Berkeley to consult on on best practices in order to provide the best forage and most efficient forage space for both the honeybees, of course. And then one of the lovely things I've read from her is that this just naturally also benefits all of the native bee populations in the area as well. Well, that's really extraordinary and, and, and uh, has been something we've only started to appreciate through the work that Jordan has done. During the growing season, we see such an abundance of uh, vegetation, and we've noticed that it, it brings in uh, pollinators of all kinds, a lot of wild bees and butterflies and hummingbirds, 
And that, um, in fact, it, beyond that, too, the, the vegetation provides um, habitat for other, uh, other creatures that um, would not be able to find the kinds of protection that they, they need in an open pasture land. So uh, we're seeing bobcats and foxes and um, um, uh, badgers and, and more and more uh, diversity in our fauna in the area as we're doing this. And, and that has been a, a sort of an unintended consequence, but a really beautiful one as well because we are seeing so much uh, diversity. Well, I love a garden, and I love a meadow, and I love a riparian corridor, and I love wildlife habitat, but I also really love your mead. And I have had the pleasure now of tasting three different varietals, the California orange blossom, the Oregon chicory, and the Madras carrot. So when a beekeeper is collecting the honey from these single floral sources, do they have to collect the honey quite quickly? Right. So the, the, that's exactly right. The, uh, the beekeeper brings his, his beehives to the farm that has the, the crop in bloom and sets those, those hives down on the land and allows the bees to do their pollination job. And then when they're done, the, the, um, the hives are put back on his, his, uh, the flatbed of his truck and they're hauled away back to his, um, wherever the beekeeper keeps his, his bees, wherever his farm is. And then those, um, the, the frames from those hives are removed from the hive. Uh, the, bee, the honey frames are, and the honey is extracted right away. Um, and only a portion of, of those um, well, honey frames are removed, of course. Some has to be left as food for the, for the bees. And then um, the, the other frames are replaced and the bees are taken off to, to their next destination, wherever they're going to feed or wherever they're going to pollinate. How many varieties have, do you have each year and about how long do they last? I ask because I noticed that you had a, a radish varietal earlier this year. And so um, I'm wondering sort of what the changeover in varietals is per year and over the course of several years. I, I think we're doing around, we're doing around eight varietals a year right now. And, and uh, it does change a little bit with the seasons. There are some that we like to bring out at certain times of year. Our point raised wildflower varietal is something that usually comes out about now, uh, Christmas time. So we've just released that one. Uh, the orange blossoms glorious to have in the in the springtime. Although we really try to keep that available year round. Uh, over the course of the last twenty years, uh, I've made uh, about uh, a little over two dozen varietals. Some of them. Uh, we reproduce every year. The orange blossom is one of those. Uh, and some are, are more difficult to, the honeys are more difficult to find. Avocado blossom honey, interestingly enough, is one that I made for years. And it produced a varietal that was very dry and austere with a little bit of a, a bitterness at the finish, a, a little bit like a, a Pilsner beer, actually. Very popular varietal, but um, because of the droughts in Southern California, many of the avocado farmers have not been able to irrigate their their uh, trees, and so there has not been an avocado crop. If they're not focused on producing an avocado crop, they're not going to call in the beekeeper to pollinate. And if the pollinators don't come, then there's no honey, honey produced. So that is a varietal that uh, has become fairly rare. 
Another uh, varietal that's hard to get a hold of during drought times is uh, sage blossom. We have a source for sage from the Sierra foothills, but they need 12 inches of rain during the wintertime in order to ensure that there's a sage bloom. If they don't get those 12 inches, there is no sage bloom. It's an extraordinary source of wild nectar for the bees in those Sierra foothills when it is available. And uh, um, the honey crop from it is really beautiful. It's an extraordinary mead as well. But uh, because of the drought, it's been next to impossible to find sage honey to, uh, to produce mead from. But, and uh, we also source some honeys out of the big island of Hawaii. The islands produce more honey per capita than anywhere else in the United States, at least that I know of, and more than the islanders can consume themselves. So they're a rare instance of a bounty of honey and and needs to market it. So from the big island, we get a macadamia nut honey that is suitably buttery and, and nutty in flavor, and that's very popular as well. And then a lighter lahua blossom honey that is uh, comparable, very comparable to a, a, a champagne. So I'm always looking for other sources of honey. If you think of um, how many uh, flower sources there are for nectar, the opportunities are almost limitless. So I'm always talking with uh, 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 beekeepers around the country and around the world about the availability of particular honeys that I might be able to use to, to make a new varietal. And that's really about the most interesting thing I get to do is experiment with, with these different honeys and find out what happens when you take the nectar of a flower and um, allow the bee to process it in her own particular way and then use that honey to uh, make a wine. So it's an, it's an exciting adventure to, to do that. Well, and it's a delicious adventure. I had a great time tasting the different varieties. What is the story behind the name Hydrin? Uh, the name uh, comes from Norse mythology. And uh, you may recall the, 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 the highest god in Norse mythology is Odin. And Odin lives in his palace, Valhalla. Odin is... Uh, He's a little paranoid that his enemies are trying to kill him. So he subsists on, he's, he's afraid he's going to be poisoned by his enemies, basically. So he subsists on, on mead, and the mead that he drinks for breakfast, lunch, and dinner comes from the udder of his mythological goat. It's a goat that instead of producing milk, produces mead, and the goat's name is Hydrin. And the goat forages on... Well, she forages from the Drassel tree uh, in in the mythology, and how exactly it goes from that tree to being mead is is the subject for a mythologist, I suppose. <laughs> but basically, the tree of life. The tree of life. You're right. I enjoy this work every day, and I enjoy sharing uh, what we're doing with the visitors to the meadery. There's nothing like sharing a glass of sparkling wine with somebody out on the pastures and watching uh, the bees do their work collecting the nectar that's going to become the honey for the very next varietal that we produce. Uh, There's no better way of helping people to connect what they consume with the natural world, and, and that's probably the biggest joy of all for what we do. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gordon. It's my pleasure. And Happy New Year. And the same to you.
Gordon Hull is the mead maker and owner of Hydrin Meadery, creators of dry, sparkling meads, which, being honey-based, embody the essence of watershed, soil, plant and floral diversity, and healthy, wildlife-friendly, wild and cultivated habitat, based in Point Reyes, California. Make sure to listen to this week's audio extra at mynspr.org to hear Gordon describe in detail several of the hydrant sparkling mead varieties and their floral essences, as well as where to buy them. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive and the audio extra, or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit MyNSPR.org. For more information, including many photos of Hydrin Meadery and the Meads, please visit JewelGarden.com. For fun daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week and next year, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.